The debate of whether mercy killing can be used as a defense in a murder case is once again in the spotlight after a domestic homicide in Ottawa. Richard Rutherford, a former principal dancer with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and officer with the Canada Council for the Arts, was found dead in his home Easter weekend. His longtime spouse, Philippe Hébert, has been charged in his death. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Ottawa Citizen reporter Andrew Duffy joins me to discuss events that led up to Rutherford's death, why the couple's friends think it was an act of mercy, and how such acts are viewed by the Canadian legal system. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Andrew, you had this fascinating story about a case that has hit the courts in Ottawa, and I do want to talk about how this case unfolded and some of the legal ramifications of it. But first, I feel like we need to talk about the human side of things, and I'm wondering what you can tell me about Philippe Bear and Richard Rutherford. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll kind of tell you a bit about how it unfolded for me, you know. So I was working on... Easter weekend and it was Good Friday and there was a notice from the police that there had been a murder and uh, it was on Smythe Road in Ottawa, which is right near the main city hospital. So it was a Saturday morning when I go out there, quite a nice morning. And it was this lovely little home on Smythe Road where the homicide had taken place. And so right away, I, I knew it was unusual, you know, because there was, you know, an Easter rabbit in the window and there was, uh, you know, this beautiful little garden that was starting to bloom out front and it was just a, a, a tidy, neat little home. Mm-hmm. So I started knocking on doors and, you know, one of the neighbors, this guy, George, went, answered the door, really pleasant guy. And I was asking him if he knew anything about what happened next door or the, or the people involved. And he told me about the victim. And the victim was this gentleman named Richard Rutherford. And George started to explain that he was, in fact this very famous principal dancer from the Winnipeg Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Hmm. And uh, that kind of sent me on this exploration for the next two or three days about just who Richard Rutherford was. Over the next few days, you started looking into the lives of the people who lived in the home. What did you discover about Richard Rutherford and Philippe Bear? Well, that's the thing. They had a really interesting backstory. You know, Rutherford was this star in his time, at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, you know, as a guy that was born in Augusta, Georgia, goes to the New York School of American Ballet. And in 1957, he gets a job offer to become a dancer at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, which was his lifetime dream. He didn't even know where Winnipeg was at the time. He had no idea what he was getting into. But he ends up going to Winnipeg, becomes their soloist and principal dancer within a couple of years and and becomes quite a big star in the Canadian dance scene. And at the end of his dance career, he becomes one of the artistic directors at the ballet. Mm -hmm. And in 1975, he's artistic director. Then he goes to a gay bar in Winnipeg place called the happenings. It was in an old synagogue in the North end of Winnipeg. And that's where he meets this guy, Philippe Hébert. And Philippe was a hospital orderly, from this big Franco Manitoban family, you know, 10 kids. And uh, the two of them really hit it off and they become a couple. And they moved to Ottawa together a year later in 1976 when Richard Rutherford goes to work for the Canada Council for the Arts. Mm-hmm. A year or two later, they buy this home in Ottawa on Smythe Road. And 
Rutherford becomes part of this committee in Ottawa, a group in Ottawa that brings a, a human rights monument to the city. And, you know, the two of them have this fabulous life together. They must have been well known in the community, having a kind of a high profile position with the Canada Council for the Arts. What do people remember of them in the community? Well, the thing everyone has, you know, really fond memories of them as a couple. You know, they were sort of known as an inseparable duo and they kind of did everything together. You know, they had season's tickets at the NAC. They'd go to the dance season all the time. They gardened together. You know, Richard was a very gifted gardener. Phil was known for his cooking. So he did all the couples cooking and they entertained a lot in their home. And, you know, I talked to a whole raft of people who waxed poetic about the dinners they'd have at their house. The neighbors loved them. Like they're a very involved couple. You know, one, one of the people I talked to was this young man who was an immigrant from Honduras. And he said, you know, the very first people they met in the country were Phil and Richard, and they helped them ever since. Mm -hmm. And this young guy would help Richard after he started to decline physically. I was curious, the fact that, you know, they met in the 70s, they'd been together for 40 years. Richard was already a, a successful dancer and had a dance career. They must have been growing old together. And with that comes health challenges. And what did you learn about Richard's health over the last few years? He was, you know, this really terrific physical specimen as a ballet dancer, you know, could do 200 push-ups, and, you know, he worked really long, difficult hours as a dancer. And so just before the pandemic, you know, 2018, 2019, he really started having physical problems. He had a lot of problems with his knees and he had a lot of mobility issues. You know, they, they lived in a two-story home and the bedroom and the bathroom were upstairs. And so he started to have real trouble during the pandemic, getting up and downstairs. A lot of things that he liked, he had difficulty doing. It was difficult for him to walk around the block or to garden. And so he was very frustrated by his physical limitations. And at the same time, some people said that he was starting to suffer from cognitive decline. And I'm not sure that he was ever actually diagnosed with something, but some people said that he didn't recognize them anymore. You know, one of his neighbors said that he'd have good days and bad days. So we have this picture of this happy couple. They've been together for a long, long time, some health issues, but nothing else that would lead people to think that they may expect police to be at their house on Easter weekend. And one of the two of them found dead in the home. What can you tell me about the police investigation into Richard's death? Well, not much. I mean, the police haven't said a lot. Like that's one of the challenges we face right now because they haven't released a cause of death in Richard's case. So we don't know the nature of the alleged homicide here. But what we do know because Philippe Hébert, he's in custody now at the Ottawa Detention Centre, and he's talked to people on the phone that I've talked to. And from what I gather, his legal defence is going to involve a defence of mercy killing. Mercy killing isn't a strict defence in law. Like There's no legal definition that would allow you as a defence lawyer to go to court and present mercy killing as a defence. But there is the history of mercy killing in Canada and Canadian courts is such that 
juries have looked at mercy killings and often sided with the accused. And some Crown attorneys have knocked down charges based on that kind of evidence. We'll be right back. What if friends of the couple said about Philippe and Richard and what has happened here? And do they believe the notion that Richard's death was done out of some sense of mercy on the part of Philippe, that that his health yeah. may have gotten too far gone and he wasn't having a good quality of life anymore? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things is that every single person I've talked to has expressed that same idea, that... There's no way that Philippe would do something violent to Richard. Everyone said that, you know, he was a very consistent, caring, loving caregiver to Richard. And that, you know, so much of his life was wrapped up around Richard that it was inconceivable to any of them that he would visit violence upon Richard. Philippe's own health and mental health was being challenged because he was really Richard's only caregiver. And Richard, from what I understand, resisted Philippe's attempt to bring in other caregivers to help. So everyone I spoke to said that it was just inconceivable to them that Philippe would ever do something violent towards Richard, unless there was some kind of agreement, unless there was some kind of negotiation between the two. What has Philippe's lawyer had to say about this case so far? He's represented by one of the best lawyers in Ottawa, Solomon Friedman. He's one of the city's premier lawyers, and he hasn't said much. But what he has said is that, and I'll just read you what he told me. He says, as this case moves through the legal system, there will be a tragic and profoundly human story revealed in the fullness of time. As with many lawyers, he's careful about what he says to the media in advance of a court case, but I put to him that I understand that mercy killing will be raised as part of Philippe's defense. And that's the statement he gave to me in response. And when you talk about the notion of mercy killing in Canada and it not being a legal defense, it's something that jurors may side with the accused on. What's the history? What are some cases that people may recall in Canada where mercy killing has been used as a defense and maybe they were still convicted or maybe they were given a lesser charge? It kind of has a curious history, mercy killing in Canadian courts, because the best known case is obviously Robert Latimer, you know, the Saskatchewan farmer. He poisoned his cognitively impaired 12-year-old daughter, Tracy. And most Canadians would probably remember that case because it played out over years in the courts. He went on trial twice. He was charged with second-degree murder and he was convicted. But in an unusual development, the jury came back and actually recommended to the judge that he only served one year behind bars. Mm -hmm. And at trial, the judge agreed, even though by law, if you're convicted of second-degree murder, there's a 10-year minimum. And the judge said that to impose that 10-year minimum would amount to cruel, unusual punishment. So he actually agreed with the recommendation of the jury that Latimer only be sentenced to one year. But then that gets overturned on appeal, and Latimer, in fact, is sentenced to 10 years. That's the case that everybody remembers in Canada when they talk about mercy killing. But there have been a number of others, and they've had very different outcomes. And oftentimes in those cases, the jury hears the evidence, and although someone comes to the court charged with second-degree murder, they'll be found not guilty. Mm 
I actually covered a case. There was a captain, a Canadian Forces Captain Robert Semrau, who was accused of shooting a wounded Afghan soldier on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And the underlying story that the jury heard was that this was a mercy killing. And it ultimately found Semrau not guilty of second-degree murder and guilty of charges under the National Defense Act. That's happened before in Canada. And the other thing that's happened is that before trial, a Crown attorney will agree to reduce charges from second-degree murder to manslaughter. That's happened in a few times. There's a famous case in Winnipeg of this guy, Tony Jaworski, who back in about 2006, he stabbed his wife as she was in a hospital bed in Winnipeg. And she had terminal cancer and was suffering from dementia at the time. And he was charged with second-degree murder and spent 17 months in pretrial custody waiting for his trial. But before he came to trial, the Crown attorney agreed to a manslaughter deal. And then he was released based on his time already in custody. And that tends to be more typical of these kinds of cases. That's happened several times. One thing that I that I am curious about, and perhaps it hasn't been discussed in this case, but medical assistance in dying is legal in Canada. And presumably, if there were ongoing health issues that impacted Rutherford's quality of life, that that could have been an option and, and potentially wouldn't have left his husband in the legal situation he's in. Do you know if that was discussed between the couple, if that was something they pursued, or is that still unknown in this case? Everybody I've talked to, I have asked them that question, the people I've talked to, and nobody knew of Richard or Philippe approaching anyone official about MAID. And there's some question as to whether or not Richard would have been able to assent or agree to MAID, because you still have to be cognitively well enough to agree to that. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether or not Richard could have done that. And so Philippe has been taken into custody. He's, I assume, had a bail hearing. Is he still in custody or is he waiting release? No, he was released earlier this month, you know, which is unusual. You know, someone's charged with second degree murder. It's not that often that they're released on bail, but Philippe was released with the consent of the Crown Attorney, you know, so He's basically under house arrest. And Solomon Friedman, his defense lawyer, came to the court with a bail plan that basically keeps him under house arrest in that same home on Smythe Road. And the Crown Attorney case agreed to his release. And lastly, before we wrap up, I know that mercy killing isn't necessarily a defense. And there have been instances where you may see a reduced charge in a murder case. Do we get the sense whether... Legal experts figure this could be a successful defense in this case. Like, are there opinions on whether this will lead to a reduced charge or a reduced sentence? The lawyers I've talked to think that it's possible that the Crown Attorney will agree to a reduced charge. Because if you reduce the charge to manslaughter, it takes away the mandatory minimum. That's sort of the common element in other cases, is that once you take away second-degree murder, then take away that mandatory minimum. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes up to the discretion of the judge to decide what the sentence should be. And so, generally speaking, there's this feeling that manslaughter is a better charge in these kinds of cases. It certainly is a, a fascinating case, obviously a very human tragedy. 
we will definitely be keeping an eye on how things unfold in this case. Andrew, thanks for your time. Okay, you bet. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Andrew Duffy. More from him at ottawacitizen.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.